a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Why do I do it? I mean, obviously, you know, besides the, uh, you know, explanation that because there's something ain't right in my head. Why do I sit down every day, pick up this microphone and hold forth on what I hope are useful topics that will, you know, shed some light on the world around you as well as what you and I can do to improve the situation. I do it because there are certain things that matter. I think there are some things that matter enough that it's it's worth putting yourself at risk. Now, so what exactly am I doing risking it here? What am I sitting on my biscuit, never willing to risk it, as uh, Daryl from the uh, <laughs> from the office would say? Yeah, sometimes I feel that way. But anybody who speaks up, anybody these days, is is risking being labeled, you know, an extremist or you know some kind of uh, bigot or just you know dangerous, you know, domestic terrorist. What you don't believe the official narrative? Well, you ought to keep an eye on this guy. So there is some risk. And, and thankfully, I, I find myself in a position where those risks are mitigated to, to the extent that I, I can mitigate them. And what I mean by that is I don't work for a particular company. I'm not dependent upon the, the gr- good graces of a corporation to be able to speak my mind. Now, there are radio stations that carry this program. And, you know, and I greatly appreciate that. But I also understand if, if for some reason, you know, their management were to go, well, I don't know, this is, this is a little too radical or this is, this is a little too truthful for what we would prefer to be on our airwaves. They have absolutely have the right to say, no, we're not going to do it. But at the same time, I also know there are people out there who are looking for good, solid, factual information, something that's credible, something that's timely, something they can actually hang their hat on. And to the best of my ability, that's what I try to provide on a day-to-day basis. And it's, it's because years ago, I don't remember exactly when, but I do remember there came a point where I realized there are some things that really matter. And it, it's you know personal freedom, property rights, your freedom of conscience, um, freedom of speech. This all matters. And I think it's pretty safe to say, I don't feel like I'm going too far out on a limb, to point out that most of these things are under attack. And I don't just mean, you know, someone's criticizing. I mean, deeply under attack. As in, there are people actively working day and night to try to do away with them. I feel a duty to stand up and say something. I suspect you're listening to this show because you feel a duty to do so as well. So yeah, our numbers may be few and it may seem sometimes like, wow, we are hopelessly (laughs) outnumbered. (laughs) The odds are not in our favor, but it's still the right thing to do. I don't care what names I'm called. I've become much more thick-skinned. I, I won't say I'm impervious to criticism because if somebody actually gives me criticism that is helpful and constructive, and especially if I value that person's point of view, you better believe I'll pay attention to it. But the people who just sit there looking for any reason, you know, ah, I gotcha. <laughs> you didn't capitalize this letter. You put an apostrophe where it shouldn't be. Yeah, they don't really have that much to offer. And, and there really is something, you know, that's, that's at stake here. In fact, let's, let's dive right in, shall we? I think I've, I've set the stage enough. Let's get to business. Do you find yourself wondering why the left seems so intent on destroying free speech? 
I mean, the, some of the excuses that we're hearing right now, well, you know, uh, who was it? Adam Schiff. Oh, Schiff posting like a pro on Twitter. He was saying something yesterday about, well, since Elon Musk took over Twitter, why hate speech is up this much and this many, you know, derogatory references towards women and towards people of color and towards homosexuals or the LGBT people. You know, it just, he, he, he pulled these numbers. Well, I'm not going to tell you where he pulled the numbers out. That's between him and his proctologist. But he's talking about we can't stand for this. And Representative Sillins, I don't remember who the other representative was that he named, but they, we're going to do something about this. Oh, really? And and I love the response that one person gave, which was just like, you're not even my real mom, Adam Schiff. How dare you try to protect me, an adult, from an app that I choose to, to use? But my point is simply this. Right now, the political left is extremely nervous about the idea that, you know, you and I should be able to speak freely and exchange ideas, even unpopular ideas or ideas that may fall outside of the mainstream. Okay, no, I'm not talking about, you know, truly spittle-flinging radical stuff. I'm talking about, well, I guess to them it seems radical. You know, things like, hey, your kids are your kids. And maybe it's not uh, the best that you go take them to see guys in lingerie shaking their junk in their face, right? But that's, that's considered a radical point of view these days. Thomas DiLorenzo, who is uh, really a terrific writer, has a terrific article on lourockwell.com today, why the left must destroy free speech or be destroyed. Let me share a couple of excerpts from that article. He says, in Hayek's famous 1944 book, The Road to Serfdom, he warned that the intellectual and political classes of the democracies of that time were embracing some of the same ideas that inspired Hitler's Germany, Mussolini's Italy, and Stalin's Russia. Comprehensive government planning, hyper-regulation of, ind of industry, nationalization, welfare statism, and collectivism in general. Now, he did not predict that these societies would end up in serfdom. However, as some have mistakenly claimed, in fact, quite the contrary. In his first chapter, he clearly stated that he hoped the ideas in the book would help these countries to avoid that disastrous fate. He hoped the ideas of the book would be a roadblock on the road to serfdom. Now, the 11th chapter of The Road to Serfdom is entitled The End of Truth, about the historical imperative of in all totalitarian states throughout history to destroy freedom of speech so that the only true belief is the social plan imposed by the state, whatever that may be. Now, this is achieved by relentless institutionalized lying and propaganda, coupled with harsh censorship of all contrary ideas, or even questions about the propriety of forcefully imposing one single social plan. Now, this is American society today, says Tom DiLorenzo. In other words, in case you haven't noticed, uh, socialism, Hayek said, has always been about substituting the plans of the politicians for the plans that all the citizens make for themselves. It's not a matter of planning versus no planning, but who is to do the planning. What a great explanation, by the way, of socialism. When someone argues, well, that's not really socialism. If it involves somebody else making decisions for you that are rightfully yours to make, yeah, that's that's socialism. Or at least you can rightly point to it as such. Tom DiLorenzo says, the significance of propaganda in totalitarian countries, Hayek wrote, <clears throat> is that if all the sources of current information are effectively under one single control, it is no longer a question of merely persuading people of this or that. The skillful propagandist then has the power to mold minds in any direction he chooses. Now, Jeff Deist, among others, has commented that America today has become a post-persuasion society. And he's right. 
Almost 80 years after Hayek issued this warning, the left is no longer willing to seriously debate anything, at least for the time being, while they control the universities, all three branches of government, the media, laughingly named entertainment industries, and more. Even dopey Prince Harry publicly denounced the First Amendment in a pathetic attempt to ingratiate himself with Hollywood leftists like his wife after divorcing himself from his family and moving to Hollywood. Now, if you disagree with their latest version of socialist totalitarianism, like wokeism coupled with green hysteria and calls for worldwide central planning, you can be canceled, smeared as a racist, a white supremacist, or even fired from your job and prevented from getting a new one. So the moral consequences of totalitarian propaganda are even more profound. Tom DiLorenzo says it is destructive of all morals because it undermines one of the foundations of all morals, that is, the sense, and, the sense and respect for the truth. An avalanche of official lies has always been the tool of various theoreticians of the totalitarian system, wrote Hayek, citing Plato's noble lies and social myths championed by the French philosopher Georges Sorel. The ends justify the lying means to totalitarians everywhere. In fact, he says, when was the last time a White House spokesperson did not lie in public? That's a great question. It's seriously, that's their job. How can we spin this so that there's some plausible way to make people believe it? Now, Tom DiLorenzo says, of course, minority opinions must also be silenced and every act of the government must become sacrosanct and exempt from criticism. This was never more on display than in the government responses to the pandemic of 2020, followed by the Biden campaign and its collusion with big tech to censor even the president of the United States, along with massive evidence of the colossal criminality and corruption of the Biden family crime syndicate. This was arguably the biggest governmental assault on the First Amendment, apparently organized by the FBI and CIA, since it was essentially done away with by the John Adams administration's Sedition Act. We're going to come back to this in just a few moments. This is such a great article. I've got a link in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com if you want to take the time to read it and digest it for yourself, maybe even share it with the people who you feel are like-minded or would benefit from, from understanding this. You probably sense this, though, right? I mean, you, you probably can see that there are certain things you and I are just not supposed to question. And by gosh, the media is there to correct us and sternly lecture us right back into our lane. Don't you dare suggest that there was anything that was uh, untoward about the 2020 election and so forth. By the way, I've got a great article about the 2020 election. Just comes right and says, yes, it was definitely stolen. I think you'll like what, uh, what the author has to say there, too. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I do want to mention Garage Door Pros, one of the sponsors of this program. And what a blessing they are to the St. George, Utah, Cedar City, Utah, Mesquite, Nevada, and Colorado City, Arizona communities. We're talking installation, service, and repair of garage doors, both residentially and commercially. If you want to get a hold of them, here's a couple of ways you can do it. You can pick up the phone and call 435-525-2773, or I recommend click on the link I provide in my show notes. Go to garagedoorproservices.com, and you can learn everything you want to know about them, as well as how to get in touch with them. So I'm sharing this article from 
Thomas DiLorenzo. This was published on LewRockwell.com earlier today. And he's talking about why the left must must destroy free speech or itself be destroyed. He talks about how academe must also be thoroughly corrupted. Now, this is according to Friedrich Hayek in The Road to Serfdom. Hayek said, for the disinterested, sorry, the disinterested search for truth cannot be allowed in a totalitarian system. American universities have gone almost all the way down to the end of the road of ser- to serfdom in this regard. In fact, many have fallen off the cliff completely. This is especially true, said Hayek, of the disciplines of history, law, and economics. Now, they must be compromised in a way that supports the state rather than criticizes it, however mildly. The American history profession is almost completely dominated by Marxists, for example, and economics has been plagued by Keynesian central planners and market failure theorists for decades. As Doug Casey once remarked, most economists today are political apologists masquerading as economists. They prescribe the way they would like the world to work and tailor theories to help politicians demonstrate the virtue and necessity of their quest for more power. The field of economics, says Casey, has been turned into the handmaiden of government in order to give a scientific justification for things the government wants to do. In totalitarian societies, wrote Hayek, truth is not something that's discovered by learning, education, self-study, research, and debate and discussion. Instead, it's something to be laid down by authority. In today's world, for example, global warming hysteria is settled science, the most unscientific phrase ever uttered. A true scientist always questions the status quo, not necessarily rejecting it, but keeping an open mind that new research can alter his thinking. Nothing is ever settled. How a slippery politician like Al Gore is considered to be an expert on the philosophy of science and atmospheric science to boot, well, that's one of the wonders of the world. Oh, by the way, don't forget the notion that that the notion the Earth was flat was once declared to be settled science by the Al Gores of that day. Medical science is not science, we've been told. Anthony Fauci is medical science. Or rather, the authority of Anthony Fauci, a grotesquely overpaid government bureaucrat, is science. Again, nothing is more unscientific than these ridiculous, arrogant, and tyrannical pronouncements by Anthony Fauci and his political sidekicks. Intolerance, too, is openly extolled in totalitarian society, said Hayek, anticipating by decades the 1960s-era new left hero, the totalitarian intellectual Herbert Marcuse, who authored a widely celebrated paper on repressive tolerance, the idea that only the oppressed classes deserve free speech. That sounds like something we're seeing today. In the world of the 60s, new left whose students and political descendants now control almost all of academe, television, and the media in general, much of government, woke corporations, and other institutions, the oppressor class is comprised essentially of all white, heterosexual males, especially ones of European descent. Everyone else is oppressed by them, the theory goes. The poorest, lowliest white redneck is said to oppress black millionaires and billionaires. Question this theory in our post-persuasion society, You'll be labeled a racist, a white supremacist, and possibly even a Nazi. Hayek based these ideas on his years of study of world history and of the totalitarian regimes of the early 20th century. Wokeness did not just suddenly appear and proceed to take over almost the entire Western world. It's just the latest manifestation of totalitarianism that's been marching through the institutions for several generations. There are always totalitarians in our midst, 
the chapter of Title 13 of the Road to Serfdom, and today's uh, totalitarians consider themselves to be standing on the shoulders of all those who preceded them, however unsavory they might have been. That's why many on the left celebrated after the worldwide collapse of socialism in the late 1980s and early 1990s. We no longer have to be associated with monsters like Stalin, Mao, Nikolai Ceausescu, and other mass-murdering communists of the 20th century, they said. And like all other totalitarians who came before them, they fully understand that freedom of speech is to them what sunlight or a Christian cross is to Dracula. That's why they are all now hell-bent on destroying Elon Musk, a man who's attempting to add a tiny smidgen of free speech to the stifling statist political correctness of American society. Their treatment of Musk will eventually make their treatment of Donald Trump seem like a love fest in comparison. Wow. Just as an aside, got a good friend who uh, who regularly communicates with me and has shared a number of articles about, did you see what uh, Musk did today or did you see what he said today and the things that he's releasing and the places where he's shining light? And every time he shares one of these with me, he says, I worry for this guy. I hope his security is good. He's going to get epstein if he's not careful. We kind of joke about that, but there's a seriousness there that I think most of us would uh, be reluctant to admit, but it's still there. Thomas DiLorenzo says their hatred for Trump, by the way, is derived from the same source as their hatred for Elon Musk. Like Musk, Trump called out and publicized many of the official lies and official liars of the Washington establishment, especially those in the fake news business. Ooh, they hate that term. The left considers the fight over free speech to be a political death struggle. And Tom Lorenzo, DiLorenzo says they're right about that. If anything deserves to be strangled in its crib, it is the left's current assault on the First Amendment. Now, when we talk about, you know, the, the fight over free speech, maybe you think it's, well, this is, some, this is why we go to the streets and this is why we need to be carrying placards and chanting in unison. I'm not sure that that's the best way to do it. Yeah, I mean, for some people, that may seem like that's the most productive way to get their message out. All I know is that if <clears throat> we relent, or if we quietly, oh, I'm going to go sit back here and be a wallflower or hide out in the crowd and just, you know, not draw attention to myself because we're afraid someone's going to label you a white nationalist or, you know, something else. You're going to hand that control over free speech to the people who are working the hardest to destroy it. So what I'm suggesting, I mean, it's going to sound radical to them, but to you and me, hopefully this doesn't sound too radical. All I'm suggesting is, you and I have to be ready, willing, and able to speak the truth anytime, anywhere. And, and to speak it without apology. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be brash. It doesn't mean you have to be thumping your chest and daring anybody. Come on, who wants to fight me? Who wants to rip your shirt off? Come on, I'll take them all on. It's just a matter of being that voice of reason. The person who has the courage to stand up against the crowd and say, this is not right. And it can take a lot of different forms. You know, I mean, look at the way parents were being treated for questioning their school boards on some of the things that were being brought into their kids' classrooms or into their school libraries or events that were being held at their kids' schools. What? We could drag queen story hour now in school? What's up with that? But these parents who stood up and said something about it, how were they treated? Well, if you think about a year ago, uh, I believe it was uh, the Department of Justice was starting to look at them and investigate them and intimidate these parents as potential domestic terrorists. So, yeah, 
There are people who take this pretty seriously. They don't want the light of truth being shown on what they're doing. And that means that uh, they're likely to engage in name-calling and intimidation and other scare tactics, sometimes outright threats, to try to shut us up. How courageous are we going to have to be? I'm not sure I want to know the answer to that question. Because it makes me think about uh, what Alexander Solzhenitsyn said long ago about how, you know, to stand for truth is nothing. For truth, you must sit in jail. And the way things are headed, I think that's actually uh, quite true. More than a few really good people are going to be sitting in jail because they dared to speak the truth. So the challenge before you and me is to be courageous enough and informed enough and committed enough to be that person, if necessary. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Want to give a shout out here to MonticelloCollege.org as well as LifesavingFood.com. I have links to both of these sponsors in my show notes at TheBrianHydeShow.com. If you haven't subscribed to my show notes, I'm not trying to tell you, hey, you ought to do it. And, you know, right now it's a two for one deal. I don't charge anything for these show notes. I do spend a fair amount of time each day trying to find the best articles that I can to shed some light on what's happening in our world. And so if you want to benefit from that, you want to do your own research. There's nothing that implies you have to believe what I'm sharing with you. But it's there if you want to check it out to to subscribe. It's very simple. Go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. Click on show notes down at the bottom of the page. You'll see the subscribe button. It's going to ask you for your email, which I will not give, share, or sell to anybody. That stays with me. But I'll send these out every single day that I do the show, and you can do your own research. All right. So I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, this is a topic that comes up about, uh, about once a year. It's the National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA. And I think even a breakfast sausage doesn't have quite as much pork in it as uh, the NDAA. Got a great article here from Thomas Knapp, Thomas L. Knapp, actually, on the latest version of the NDAA. Apparently, it contains a Journalism Competition and Protection Act, which he points out is is promoting a, a good idea, promoting a stupid behavior rolled into an unrelated bill. Here's how Thomas Knapp explains it. He says, It's never really news that the annual National Defense Authorization Act is bloated. The 2023 version comes to $858 billion, which probably 10 times of what's required to fund an actual national defense, as opposed to trying to maintain a sprawling global empire in terminal decline. He says, it's also never really news that various political factions slip non-defense priorities that can't pass on their own merits into the annual NDAA, which politicians describe as a must-pass bill. Hawks in Congress only get their billions in corporate welfare for defense contractors if they support unrelated add-ons. Well, this year, one major inclusion entirely unrelated to anything resembling national defense is the Journalism Competition and Preservation Act. And he rightly points out, as is so often the case with legislative titles, it would accomplish exactly the opposite of encouraging competition or preserving journalism. Now, the core of the JCPA is an exemption to U.S. antitrust laws for news organizations. 
Now, Thomas Knapp says, put that way, I'm inclined to like it. Contra high school civ- history or civics tests, texts rather, antitrust law was invented by and for the benefit of large corporations and has always functioned to reduce competition and jack up prices. But that's another story. He says the intent of the JCPA is to allow media organizations to get together and create joint negotiation entities, the kind cartel antitrust law forbids to collectively bargain with digital platforms for compensation. Now he asks, compensation for what? Promoting and giving advertising to those same media organizations and their content? The idea is that these cartels would have the bargaining power to bludgeon Google News, Facebook, Facebook rather, at all, into paying news or organizations for the privilege of linking and previewing content that sends readers or viewers to that content. Imagine, for example, that every time your favorite news aggregator told you about a story carried by the New York Times or Fox News or the Batesville, Mississippi Pinolian, the aggregator had to fork some money over to the big and small news organization Trust, which, hypothetically, those three organizations belong to. That's like telling you that if you drive a Ford F-150, every time you cruise down the street and people see the Ford logo, especially if they ask you about it and you say, yeah, great truck, you should buy one, you'll have to pull out your wallet and hand a dollar to the Ford GM Chrysler Trust. Now, he says, if, that's, if that idea sounds monumentally stupid, well, it is. For obvious reasons, companies like Facebook parent Meta are saying they may yank news links and previews from their platforms altogether if JCPA becomes law. So Thomas L. Knapp says, look, I'm all for news organizations being able to hit up platforms for payment and for those platforms being able to say, no dice, we can link for free or we won't link at all. We're helping you out here. Take it or leave it. Or to put it a different way, he says, I'm all for allowing news organizations to try something stupid and find out it doesn't work. But he says Congress should vote on a clean bill, repealing antitrust altogether, instead of slipping one exemption into an unrelated piece of legislation. That's some really clear analysis, and i got to tip my hat to a Thomas L. Knapp for, uh, for zeroing in on this. Yeah, the, the NDAA always contains some little surprises because, uh, as he points out, it's one of those things. It just has to be passed. We can't, we can't afford not to pass this one. Sometimes there's some really crazy surprises that come along with that. I don't like surprises, or at least I don't like that kind of surprise. All right, moving on. Let's talk a little bit about uh, what it means to live in a post-truth society. I assume that you're a truth seeker at some level. Well, Josh, or I'm sorry, Joseph Gish has a terrific article on AmericanThinker.com asking whether we live in a post-truth society. He starts with the question, has our society transitioned to a period of post-truth? And if so, what does it mean? Where is it taking us? Is it permanent? Can we fight it? Now, the online Cambridge Dictionary defines post-truth to mean relating to a situation in which people are more likely to accept an argument based on their emotions and beliefs rather than one based on facts. So given this definition, he says, I personally believe much of the United States has transitioned to a post-truth society, and many of us will become casualties of this new paradigm before harsh reality steers our nation back to an objective truth-based decision-making. How many times have you heard someone use the phrase, my truth is... Well, this phrase is at the core of a post-truth society as it replaces a singular objective truth with many truths based on individual emotions. 
And the danger from this type of thinking can be illustrated by imagining yourself wrongly accused of murder and finding yourself tried by a jury filled with people who believe in my truth instead of objective truth. In this world, the prosecutor needs to make jurors feel as if they are bad people as opposed to being forced to introduce evidence that will persuade a rational jury that you're guilty. He says, we are our emotions, so if they do not inform us of the truth, what use are they? He says, I believe our emotions, when informed by objective truth, are an early warning system for avoiding future trauma. Now, the early warning system is what we call intuition or gut feeling. Joseph Gish says, uh, when we experience the type of trauma that causes our brains to fixate on an event, I believe we are subconsciously informing our intuition about the truth of the event in order to avoid a similar trauma in the future. Should a similar situation arise in the future, our gut feeling will allow us to take quick action to avoid the same trauma from happening again. In other words, our intuition is an emotion-based defense mechanism that allows us to act quickly without thinking to avoid danger. Now, by contrast, a post-truth society deliberately stifles the development of intuition by avoiding emotional trauma altogether. Instead of emotions being informed by objective truth, those emotions become our truth. He asks, what better way is there to control people than through emotional manipulation after crippling their defensive intuition? However, this societal manipulation strategy can only work, on, can only work as long as my truth is not confronted with the truth. And my truthers are insulated from emotional trauma. So what caused our society to reach this tipping point? Well, he says, I believe the objective truth is uh, dying from a thousand little cuts. And these cuts are a purposeful strategy to destroy our society and groom a population so it can be manipulated through feelings. And he gives a few examples of how this can happen. Starting with participation trophies. Ah, you avoid the trauma of losing and you starve the intuition, intuition rather, of how to win. Or eliminating traditional roles like breaking down the nuclear family by eliminating fathers and mothers, the distinction between men and women. Also changing definitions of words, causing words to have no objective meaning, crippling our ability to communicate with each other rationally. Then you have things like toxic masculinity, discourage boys from becoming men who know how to manage the risks needed to provide for and protect a family. Or teaching children how to avoid trauma with trigger warnings and safe spaces. Teaches children to avoid facts and data that would promote rational thought leading to objective truth and an informed intuition. Or censoring speech so that my truth will not be confronted by the truth. Now, Joseph Gish says all these assaults on our truth, on the truth rather, are carefully planned and promoted by those who want to tear down our country and replace it with a new paradigm. But he also says we ignore the truth at our peril. The United States is a young frontier nation, and it's taken 250 years for generations of Americans to forget the harsh realities of taming a frontier by building shelters from the cold, growing food, developing water, fighting off wild animals, establishing towns and territories, defending freedom, etc. This heritage of battling the realities of nature and human nature made us the most innovative, hard-working, and prosperous nation in the history of the world. In fact, he says it made us prosperous enough to shield ourselves from the very traumas that shaped our success. I got to tap the brakes here because we're coming up on our own break, but we're going to come back and finish up with Joseph Joseph Gish's article, Are We Living in a Post-Truth Society? Which, of course, is included in today's show notes. Sit tight. We'll be back right after this. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Welcome to our final segment. I'm sharing an article from American Thinker. This is written by Joseph Gish. Are we living in a post-truth society? I really haven't heard that phrase a whole lot, but I, I'm, it's, it sure makes sense in the context in which he is describing it. One of the questions that Joseph Gish asks is, where is post-truth leading us? And his point is that truth is a brutal master and will make our post-truth society transitory. Our society's first casualty is unity. Truth, facts, and data are the foundations of our unity. Post-truth's first great division is the divide between those who believe in my truth and those of us who believe in objective truth. Like a cancer, this divide is corrupting our politics, law, and order, our justice system, and how we power our nation, even how we grow our food. It's dividing families, and eventually, the My Truth movement will cannibalize its own as people with incompatible My Truth worlds collide. Post-truth leads to societal collapse, which will eventually lead to the transformation of our law and order-based republic to some other form of government, most likely tyranny. So how can we fight our society's transition to post-truth and eventual collapse? Well, Joseph Gish says as much as those of us who believe in objective truth think we can reason with the my-truthers using dialogue and rational debate, he says, I've come to believe this strategy is a waste of time. Most my-truthers cannot be reasoned with and simply must be defeated. This fight will push most of us objective truthers completely out of our comfort zones. Now, here's what he's talking about. We must run for political office and put in place objective truth policies that protect individual rights. We must eliminate government stimulus and welfare so my truthers are required to face the harsh realities of making a living. Work to cut off any government funding that shields the my truthers world from the realities of the marketplace. We must confront my truthers in our online public squares, not in an attempt to turn them to objective truth, but to save those spectators who may be falling into the my truth trap. We must become doctors, lawyers, judges, college professors, etc., and sit on professional boards so they're not weaponized by my truthers. We as objective truthers must get out of our comfort zone and realize avoiding confrontation with these people is not an option. Our way of life depends on it. By the way, I agree with, with so much of what he's saying here. But at the same time, I'm going to acknowledge one of the really hard truths is doctors, lawyers, judges, college professors... The professional boards that they sit on, they've already been weaponized. So we're, we're behind the curve on this. And, and playing catch-up is going to be really, really difficult. Is it the right thing to do? I think it probably is. But that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. So, you know, we talked about this at the beginning of the show. It's, it's something that, uh, that you gotta, you've got to have a backbone if you're going to be a part of this. Now, the good news is, in my humble opinion, God made you and prepared you for a time such as this. Now, if that doesn't give you confidence, I don't know what else would. I think each of us has a role to play and that with God's help, we can do it. But that's the first place I would turn for strength, clarification, and of course, you know, the just the courage to start your feet moving. 
All right, two other quick articles I want to touch on. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I don't want to get sniffed out and, and canceled, you know, by some of the algorithms, but there is a new autopsy report that reveals uh, a number of individuals who died suddenly were likely killed by the COVID vaccine. Now, it doesn't make you an anti-vaxxer to acknowledge this. It doesn't mean that you're not a reality denier. And I know it's, it makes a lot of people uncomfortable, but this is a topic you should pay attention to. And the article is from the Brownstone Institute, who I think have done some of the finest research on everything related to COVID that I've seen. And by the way, they've been right. Their batting average is very, very high. Maybe that's why uh, mainstream tries to ignore them as much as they can, at least mainstream media. One final note here, and this this one's going to make some people squirm as well. It's really interesting how much pressure there is, even on the political right, to treat questioners of the 2020 election as irrational kooks. I mean, the left, yeah, I get where they do. This, this is the source of their power. How dare you question such a thing? Everything is fine, especially with the election. Nothing is wrong. But on the political right... I don't know if it's just the never-Trump attitude or or what, but uh, I, I see a lot of sophistry at play and a lot of people who do, well, if you question the election, it's all been debunked. It was all on the up and up. I'm sorry, but when I see President Potato Head out there again forgetting, uh, what, where am I, What re- repeat the line, I, I can't in my heart believe that uh, this guy commanded the attention, the respect, and the votes of the people that uh, that allegedly elected him. So I've got an article here from Matthew Boos, who does not mince words. He comes right out and says, yes, the 2020 election was stolen. And his point is that the right must never concede the big lie that this nation's oppressors rule legitimately, nor should we draw false or should we draw conclusions rather about how to move forward from this false premise. He says, for two years, the constant shouting of childish epithets at anyone who would dare question Joe Biden's legitimacy has suppressed a necessary reckoning with an election that was, in every sense, a complete aberration. Now, it's true, Donald Trump and many of his supporters did themselves no favors by embracing some of the more outlandish theories about what happened. But the story we have been told again and again that the 2020 election was not only fair, but some miracle of democracy is propaganda, pure and simple. Despite the media's heavy-handed narrative, he says we do not and never will really know what happened in the early morning hours of November 4th, 2020, and those chaotic days that preceded Biden's media coronation. It's disingenuous to dismiss the role of fraud in such an unprecedented scenario, an election with historic turnout that, thanks to the widespread adoption of an unconventional voting method prone to cheating, was not decided until an unusually diluted, shadowy, tabulating process had run its course in a handful of heavily partisan jurisdictions. If an election so strange had gone the other way, we can be sure the left would not be mocking voter fraud theories, but treating them like orthodoxy. In the end, Trump lost the Electoral College by about 50,000 votes in a few swing states. It has never been proven that the election was stolen at the ballot box, but to anyone not blinded by partisanship, it's never seemed an implausible question. One thing about which we need not deploy conjecture is the role of information warfare. In fact, he points to the release of the so-called Twitter files, which confirms what's been clear for two years. The nation's leading institutions tipped the scales in Biden's favor before a single ballot had been cast. And they accomplished this by essentially rigging public opinion. On one hand, malicious partisans in the media, big tech, and U.S. intelligence community systematically suppressed a major scandal about Biden's foreign influence peddling with the brazen lie that the evidence was Russian disinformation. 
Now, their latest theory is that the scandal really is about Hunter Biden's genitalia rather than his sleazy overseas business. Seriously. This censorship enabled Biden in the middle of a televised debate to dismiss the whole story as garbage, even as Biden was granted blanket immunity from scrutiny by the press. Trump was cast as a mass murderer who was personally responsible for every single COVID-19 death because of his ignorance of science. Now, if the Hunter Biden scandal had not been censored, the avalanche of the media's lies had been toned down just a little. Might Trump have won? We'll never know. But the election was certainly close enough to warrant speculation. What is certain is that the left put their collective thumb on the scale in a way that they would never accept if it was being done to them. Oh, he is right. Anyone who expects them to care now that they've been caught is a fool. Still, the right must not simply forget it and move on. Why? Because the left's big lie about the 2020 election legitimizes a lawless, counterfeit system. The myth that Biden triumphed against fascists who nearly overthrew our system of government, a classical communist theme as it happens, has enabled Biden to rule like a tyrant in the name of our democracy. Trademark. Speaking in the people's name, he's likened Trump and his supporters to a fifth column and weaponized the state against them. If the system is not unrigged, the 2020 election's legitimacy is not repudiated, then we can kiss any chance of free and fair elections goodbye. Every election going forward will be just like 2020 and 2022. Election night will be formally replaced with election month and lectures from Democrats on this is how things are supposed to be. Now, there are some on the right who would rather bury their heads in the sand than confront harsh realities. But this is not the answer. The right must never concede the big lie that this nation's oppressors rule legitimately. Nor should we draw conclusions about how to move forward from this false premise. This is no mere matter of personal grievance with a corrupt, child-sniffing tyrant or the repulsive, smug hypocrites and liars who surround him and cover for him in the press, as disgusting as they may be. It's about the future of our country and its political system. I realize that's going to chap some hides on the uh, right side of the aisle as well as on the left. I think Matthew Boos is correct, though. And those of you who have questions, I include myself among those. I Look, I don't know for sure what happened. But I know for sure I watched how hard the political left and even many members of the political establishment worked to get Trump out of the way from the time he was elected until the 2020 election. I saw the corruption they were willing to wallow in. And I don't believe for a second that they suddenly shaped up and, well, we decided to fly right because, you know, integrity matters. Yeah, right. This is The Brian Hyde Show.